0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome, everyone, to the New Books Network. My name is Rosemary Palenzuela Vicente, and I'll be your host for today's episode. I'm speaking to Dr. Rebecca Friedman about her new book, Modernity, Domesticity, and Temporality in Russia, Time at Home, which was published in 2020 by Bloomsbury Publishing. Dr. Friedman is Associate Professor of History and Director of the Wilsonian Public Humanities Lab at Florida International University. She is the author of Masculinity, Autocracy. Thank you so much for
0: having me today.
2: Absolutely. Um, You're obviously the author of Masculinity, Autocracy, and the Russian University, and co-editor for a number of volumes about gender in Russia. You also just so happen to be my advisor, and one of the kindest (laughs) humans that I know, so I'm really excited for this conversation, and it's a special treat for me.
0: Well, same here. It's not every day that one of your students interviews you, so I'm thrilled to have been asked. Thank you, and honored.
2: It's great to kind of flip the table a little bit.
0: (laughs) I know, I'm nervous.
2: (laughs) Don't be, don't be. You know, this is going to be fun. So before we begin, can you talk a little bit about your background in Russian history and what made you want to pursue like Russian and Soviet studies?
0: Sure. So um, I guess I might as well tell the real story, which I'm not sure if it makes me look good or doesn't make me look good. But basically, when I was going to college, I decided I wanted to learn a language and a language that other people didn't know. So I can remember that I signed up for intensive Russian language class at the orientation my freshman year um, at University of Michigan. And so I basically just started learning Russian right away, 10 hours a week. It was, you know, two thirds of my credit for my entire freshman year. And so when I started my sophomore year of college, I was already in fourth year Russian. So I did like a very fast track and I loved it. And one of the reasons probably why Russian appealed to me so much is I have a personal background, not so much in Russia. But a kind of classic, you know, um, East European Jewish background, which includes good Pale of Settlement on the one hand, and then Poland on the other. So there was actually Russian spoken by my grandparents to some degree, as well as Yiddish and Polish, and so forth. So it was not entirely uh, anathema or strange to me. I also think I was a budding leftist. I hate to say it, but it's true at the time. And that's something you can't say loudly in Miami, but it's true. And I think at the time, um, growing up in New Jersey in the uh, 80s, it felt like it was the, the right thing to do from the political perspective as well. So that's the real answer. And then once I studied Russian language and literature in college, I just absolutely fell in love with the language and the literature. And I tacked on history as my second major, my senior year, um, and I spent a semester in Moscow in 1988, which, for those of you who remember, was a really exciting time to be in Russia with Gorbachev at the helm. Everyone was literally on the street corners talking about all the issues, you know, during perestroika and Glasnost. I got to witness that. So there was really no turning back at that point.
2: That sounds awesome.
0: <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> yeah,
2: that sounds absolutely awesome. And I feel like I think for for people who are kind of going into fields that are sort of outside of, um, or that maybe they don't have such a personal connection to, sometimes mm-hmm. those kind of like inception stories are very similar across the board. Like you take a class and you're like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. And, and that's what, you know, that's what kind of led you down that rabbit hole. And, you know, 20 years later, you're still, you know,
0: loving Russian and Soviet history. Well, more than 20, my dear. Um, <laughs> (laughs) I I appreciate it, however. (laughs) Touche.
2: So this book is very different from your first first book. Obviously, Mm -hmm. in your first one, you really talked a lot about gender. And there's a lot of gender in this book. And we can kind of talk about that a little bit later. But what made you want to tell a story about time?
0: Sure. Um, Well, so there's a couple of ways to answer that question. I mean, the first of which I set out... um, This book and the second big kind of monographic project to really link to the first one in ways in which it ends up not (laughs) in some ways. Because one of the chapters in the masculinity book was about um, essentially, I think it was called The Loyal, what was it called? Something about the son. It was about being a kind of like loyal son and the ways in which notions of domesticity um, were actually quite important to create a kind of normative idea about masculinity in the early 19th century in Russia. So I was very interested in the notion of domesticity in um, the Russian context, especially as it relates to the kind of big yet-to-be-answered question about the degree to which bourgeois values entered into kind of Russian and then Soviet culture. So that was the question I kind of brought to project number two, and I fast-forwarded until the end of the 19th century when I started to do research It was less archival than the first book, so I was really reading published materials primarily. um, And I can talk about why that is if you're interested. Um, But as I was reading magazines and prescriptive tracks and looking at images and so forth, the notion of time and temporality really came from the primary sources themselves. So, for example, the kind of like nostalgic, the first part of the book is really about the kind of nostalgic. Look backward at the gentry estate and the kind of domestic ideas that resided within the um, gentry estate from the vantage point of the 20th century. What did it look like in the 18th century? So it was a kind of look backwards into the past to understand these kind of ideas about home. And very similarly, when I looked at um, the idea about, about domesticity in the kind of urban modern apartment uh, as at the end of the 19th, beginning of 20th century, of course, all of these peasants are moving to the city. And even though none of them could afford, a few of them could actually mm-hmm. afford to create these kind of semi-bourgeois homes, there were certainly kind of those discourses around that people could aspire to. And there too, time played a central role. Because the emphasis was on, for example, notions of efficiency and doing things quickly and in modern ways. So again, like the present invested in time. And then finally, the last was, is about the Soviet period. And of course, the communal apartment and domesticity in that context is about the future.
2: And did you always... Or did you at least think that you were always going to, like, move into the Soviet era? Did you think you were going to keep your project kind of at, like, you know, the beginning of the 20th century, not really, like, inching towards the Soviet Mm -hmm. era, but not really kind of crossing that divide?
0: it's funny, like academics are funny, you know, being among them, it felt like such a leap, you know, as somebody who was trained yeah, yeah. in Imperial Russia, to like, all of a sudden venture into the Soviet era. Yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. Do I dare? Or do I know anything? Or how is it different? You know, so it was, so I really like your question, because it's like, yes, and no, on the one hand, it did feel like a leap of faith. Can I do this? Like some self questioning there, which is funny for non-academics, because it's like, who cares? It's a matter of 10 years, you know, but actually, there's yeah, in, in fact, even the sources themselves and so forth. Yeah. But one of the other things was at the time, there was just beginning, if you asked me to come up with the titles, I may I'll try my best. But At the time that I was starting this project, which was a minute ago, um, historians were really beginning to kind of push against this kind of hard and fast revolutionary divide in the stories that they were telling about, about modern Russia. So a lot of historians were beginning to kind of traverse the divide and looking at, of course, issues of continuity and rupture, but asking the question and finding it out, if you know what I mean. So that impulse really, in some ways, reflected the historiographic moment. And it worked out really well because I needed the Soviet era to look toward the future. So, in fact, it made the arc of the book, if I do say so myself, quite nice.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And how, um, you know, you mentioned kind of methodology early, and obviously your book relies heavily on print sources but how do you study time like I was honestly like as, as I was reading and I was kind of like reading like the preface and stuff I was kind of really interested in the way that you talked about how you tackle time like how do yeah. you look at time in print sources how do you really kind of create an assessment of how people thought about the future and the past and their present
0: yeah I mean one of the things that I really kind of love about history and and it is the way in which it allows us to ask, like, kind of big philosophical questions, or the ways in which it allows us to assume nothing. So, it allows us to approach any concept that seems so terribly fixed to kind of untether it, right? And to say, wait a minute, like, like gender, for example, in the first book. So, the idea at the time of studying masculinity like turning the lens on men and saying well we know that there's something called femininity and there are normative discourses and women are taught to behave one way and use those discourses if you kind of go with the agency approach and so forth to behave in other ways and the institutions are undergirded by these ideas that ultimately is a kind of was a kind of radical notion right so you kind of untether gender and sex right Mm -hmm. from one another to look at kind of discursive approaches, cultural approaches, how context and culture matter. Ideas are kind of born within context. All that, I love that stuff. So the idea that you like something as fundamental as time, and I obviously am far from the first person to have thought of this. I mean, from like Derrida to many people, like Carolyn Seidman right. has a beautiful book on dust, which yeah, is also yeah. about time. You so I, that, yeah. yeah. And I, I know, I think, well, I read once I asked students to read that in the seminar at one point. But um, just to kind of start to shake up the idea that time itself is fixed so that a particular society measures minutes differently, for example, mm-hmm. than another society might at another time, right? Another moment, rather, don't overuse the word time, right? At another moment. Or that, for example, uh, the very notion of being nostalgic and thinking about the ways in which, say, the past helped to define the present. And so that Mm -hmm. very nostalgia becomes part of like present understanding of today, because we wouldn't be today without then, nor would we be without tomorrow, that the ways in which they're all kind of interlinked and layered on top of one another, which, of course, is the argument I make in the book, ultimately. Um, so, I mean, time came from the sources, the language of the sources themselves, like, again, efficiency, science, like having the shelf in the kitchen, make sure it's close to like the table so that, you know, the, it's always a woman, even in the Soviet period, a woman right. <laughs> who is you know, taking the dishes from the shelf to the table can do it efficiently. It's not particularly a Russian idea. It's very much European-American across the board, a kind of modern idea of efficiency. I was also always very interested in the relationship between kind of modern notion, modern Russian notions of time and their relationship to kind of non-Russian or the West, as it were. Yeah. And that that's the mention of the book I found
2: really interesting, too.
0: Mm-hmm, just the mm-hmm. way
2: that like Russians kind of um, almost like conceptualize the West and how things function in the West. I, I always find that so interesting to just kind of think about the other through the, you know, the imaginary.
0: Yes. Right. And how the West itself becomes completely made up, as we know, right. and, and becomes very kind of uniform in the idea when we know well that like Germany is not the same as England, it's not the same as France. It's not, it's not the same, the same as-,
2: as the US. Yeah,
0: exactly. And it's different for, you know, women, men, children of different classes, you know, races, ethnicities, so forth and so on, geographies. So but it does get kind of fixed in the imaginary, just like the gentry estate gets fixed. In the imaginary at the at the turn of the 20th century,
2: um, right. And so, in your first chapter, you talk mm-hmm. about um, your first chapter is titled "Russian Modernity Through Time and Space." And you and I have had a number of conversations, obviously, about material spaces and the importance of home. Mm-hmm. And this book obviously deals theoretically um, with those topics. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how? um domestic interiors and temporality kind of intersect like what do you mean by this in this first chapter and how have the scholarship really kind of tackled this in the past
0: mhm mhm i mean i in some ways it seems kind of bold to say but i don't know that the kind of wedding of domestic mm-hmm. interiors and temporality that, that 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 equation i think is my own <laughs> if right. you will which is to say i found those intersections in the sources themselves rather than relying on an existing historiography about those topics and the ways in which they intersect. I mean, there's a huge historiography obviously on about the home. and Exactly. Yes. And, and so, and part of that often has notions of temporality embedded in it. Like I said, which might include kind of, you know, If you're looking at the kind of more radical spaces, they include kind of communalism as a way toward a brighter utopian future, right? And and in France, you know, whether it's in France in the 19th century or whether it's in the Soviet Union in the early 20th century, that those kind of that match up between domestic interior as a space upon which to kind of project a kind of utopian future right so that that's an example of the kind of wedding so certainly historians have written about those questions as have they written about nostalgia i mean you know be yeah. especially in the soviet context there's a gazillion books about nostalgia some of which touch on of course the role for example of here's just a thought that came to mind i'm going to forget the name ah of it but in russian it's the maybe you'll know it's the like shop the little bag that like um, netted bag yeah that
2: Ah. Like that you take to the yeah, you oh to the
0: market to the market, you know.
2: yeah, and especially like black market.
0: Mm-hmm. Or you think about like um, the plastic plant in Svetlana Boym's work, yeah. right? And so she certainly writes a lot about about domestic interiors and various kind of projections of utopia in some ways, and also, um, of course, not only utopia but the everyday and the kind of crassness of the everyday. Um, which weighs on notions of domesticity necessarily, you know, and you had asked about gender and, and, you know, I would have liked gender to kind of come out as, you know, maybe the third or fourth (laughs) word in the title and been more prominent, but the sources really focus primarily um, on like women being the actors in the domestic sphere Mm -hmm. and, I kept looking, and actually, I gave a paper once because it was a panel on masculinity, and I was like, "Oh, I can do that." Before knowing what the sources said, and actually, there was very little of what I found. So it was more kind of silences in the sources than anything, which you know maybe is not surprising. But um, yeah, hope yeah, that's the question.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think that's really interesting. And I think it maybe even like. The idea of not including gender in the title might actually even work in your favor because there are so many kind of gender dynamics that even work within that, that I think mm-hmm. we just happen to assume it's always women. And right. you do talk a lot about men and you do talk right. a lot about like that kind of dynamic within the home and just decorating and things like that. It's it's very interesting the way you kind of phrase it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. so moving into obviously like your book obviously discusses it starts (coughs) off at the turn of the century and then it moves into the soviet era Mm -hmm. so in that early phase in that first chapter how did russians at the turn of the century understand time and physical space
0: yeah um well the so the book just to back up for a second then i'll Mm -hmm. answer the question more directly The book, the kind of meat of the book is really three chapters, as you know, Yeah, and um, it's a kind of arc that is supposed to follow past, present, future, Mm -hmm. right? And so the past, the physical space is, like I said, the estate, right, largely. The present is largely that urban apartment, and then the future is largely the communal apartment, which might actually be to one degree or other because the estates sometimes are not actually in the countryside some of them are mansions in the city which mm-hmm. by the way were kind of divided up by this early Soviet in the early Soviet period to create these apartments that were communal interestingly enough so <clears throat> in theory some of the spaces might actually have been the same um, I mean I don't know that for a fact but it strikes me that that's something that's interesting to think about so the first part of the book really uh, allowed me, to think a lot about from how from the vantage point of 1900 1910s, um, you know, Russians as it were, really urban Russians, educated primarily Russians, were very very focused on the kind of the estate that was no more and okay. the kind of interior and also the exterior of estates that were no more, that, that were often kind of dilapidated. Or to some degree, there were also some who um, form like organizations in order to keep the estates alive, to keep them going and so forth. So there was a kind of civic uh, piece to that as well, where you had civic organizations wanting to keep the estates um, alive and all of that. Um, and there was a sense that... Something was somehow being lost at this moment when, like I said, you have just kind of hyper industrialization, hyper urbanization. Mm-hmm. So there was a kind of longing for what was like kind of Chekhov esque, if you will, yeah. right You know, so the the vast spaces that were no longer there when you have people kind of huddled in the corner of an apartment because of the poverty of industrial life. And so forth. Um, And so there really the emphasis on time has much to do with, with nostalgia and a kind of nostalgia that, you know, we'll get to this, but that comes back around again when we think about kind of Russia today.
2: Yeah, and I found that part really interesting, and I remember there was, um, I'm forgetting the the person's name, but there was someone that you referenced that just kept, um, I, I don't remember if it was in a quote, or if it was just maybe something that I picked up while I was reading the book, but it was this, exactly what you were talking about, this kind of, like, longing and, like, nostalgia for estates, and yes. I think it was in reference to peasants and peasant life and the importance of peasant life. Yes. It but was I kind like, of, yeah.
0: Yes, it was Go like ahead. a... I think it might be that, if I'm not mistaken. There were a couple of diaries and memoirs that I relied on rather heavily in that first part because I wanted the kind of more textured language of describing the day-to-day life. Um, and there, there was this like absolutely kind of nostalgic childhood memory, really. So in that way, it's temporal too, because right, it's like the, the past in an individual's life. <laughs> right? yeah. If you think about an individual life as a kind of temporal arc. Um, that part of that was a kind of romanticizing of the peasants that might have interacted with, you know, members of the gentry on the estate. I mean, we know that all the violence of day-to-day life that was, the, in fact, very much part of, of the 18th, and 19th centuries. But a lot of that does not um, come to light in these nostalgic portraits
2: right and can you talk a little bit more about like the print sources and the periodicals that you dealt with like what were they i know like specifically like you like i think in, that yeah. is in the second chapter you really start kind of like honing in on like specific periodicals like you mentioned gen Um right. what are the other kind of like prescriptive texts or periodicals that you kind of drew from for this
0: yeah well um i mean we know this from the work of catcher kelly who writes mm-hmm. about kind of prescriptive literature but there's a kind of boom in prescriptive literature at the, during this very time when, you know, a lot of people are living these really difficult lives in the city. Um, and there's all these texts circulating about how one is actually supposed to live this much more kind of bourgeois looking lifestyle. Um, and those come in the form of deliberately prescriptive texts. This is how you are to behave. And kind of magazines that were a lot of women's magazines emerge in that period as well, the 1910s and so forth. Jewish being just among among one there's Hazayeh Hazayeh I can't even remember off the top of my head but there were probably um, five to seven that I I uh, used very regularly that had runs of anywhere from like ten to forty years actually some of them interestingly enough ran into the Soviet period and started to change a little bit once the Soviets took over but the magazines actually um, remained. And there, was that, oh, that's right. And then there was this one very beautiful one. It's funny; I haven't thought about my book in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you remember the name of the really beautiful one? There was one. Oh, mm. so funny! I should have my book in front of me. It was—it's a glossy, <coughs> kind of arty periodical. This is more for the first chapter that had these portraits of the states that were just gorgeous, and it's a kind of periodical that probably not very many people could afford to see but it existed and it kind of kept up for you know 10 20 years and it's absolutely gorgeous but these the other ones that play a more important part in uh, the middle part that's about the apar- the apartments and so forth are really uh, the kind of like you know weekly every other week kind of mm-hmm. newspaper type publications <laughs> that women would have read to find out what they should be feeding there were recipes or like um, home like homeopathic things to do when your child has a runny nose or, you know, really kind of day-to-day advice uh, primarily for women in the home.
2: And how did women um, contribute to these conversations? I know, like, obviously, like, at the turn of the century, there's a lot of conversations about health, about what modernity means. We haven't talked about that word yet. (laughs) I'm always kind of hesitant to talk about it because it's like, you know, a rabbit hole you fall into and you never come out of. Um, (laughs) Right. Like, how did they really kind of um, contribute to these conversations about health and modernity, obviously, like, efficiency and what homemaking is supposed (laughs) to be?
0: I mean, it, so the idea, at least in the context of the kind of um, modern apartment, if you will, mm-hmm. or what I'm talking about present time in the urban apartment, um, the notions of modernity are very much manifest in the kind of um, emphasis on hygiene and science. So a lot of the periodicals emphasize the ways in which apartments should be clean or windows should be open and that there's a, that, that you'll have an editorial from somebody called Dr. So-and-so mm-hmm. right? and then you'll then have a kind of ed- an exchange from a reader and a reply from that doctor about a particular problem in the home, you know, that has to do with issues of cleanliness and being hygienic and being modern and the, you know, that, that, the idea, it's like, anyway, for sure it's ameni is used a lot. Um, so like the, the idea of being kind of contemporary and modern is very much part of the conversation, right? That you want to have these efficient, scientific, clean homes. Now, mind you, and this is the question I always get every time I've ever given a paper about this project at a conference is, wait a minute, like who could possibly afford to do that well very few people but i'm making the argument that it was a kind of aspirational yeah um idea right that these ideas are kind of out there in the culture and they're aspirational and they're not
2: just russian because like obviously at the turn of the century you see this everywhere absolutely in so many other places i was finding really interesting kind of like connections between like what i'm reading in russia and when i was reading in latin america for example at different places like you know and like especially after like liberation you're looking at like new welfare states and things like that like these are the conversations that are coming up at the turn of the century that just it doesn't I I think that there's almost like this idea of like Russia being kind of stuck in the past in this moment and it's like everyone was kind of feeling that at the time you know
0: no that's absolutely true I mean absolutely true I you know I'm thinking about um You know, just the idea of modernity itself, if you Mm -hmm. look at it in the domestic context, it is almost always kind of manifest with these ideas of science, right? Yeah. And and science in that context means like keeping the germs away and bacteriology or whatever it's called, you know, keeping all that away and having clean homes and And child
2: rearing. Yeah.
0: Child rearing, bathing or swaddling Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, right? Um, All of that
1: That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Oh, I realize yeah. I got the chapters backwards. That's the first that I do that chapter, and then I do the nostalgic <laughs> one. That's funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. It's past, present, future, in any event. But, so can um, you um,
2: can you walk us a little bit through, uh, like, in the second chapter, like, in present time hygiene in the urban apartment, can you yeah. walk us through what, what those urban apartments actually look like? Obviously, like, a lot of Russians began to migrate to the cities during this time, and they started living in these apartments. So yeah. what did they look like? What did these designated spaces, um, like, how did they involve...
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, it you know, it bears saying that what I will describe really was available for a very small percentage of people. You have to just because we know well from a variety of sources, secondary and primary, that at this time when there was a huge rapid industrialization urbanization, you really do have peasants coming to the city part-time that, you know, Mm. go back and forth. And when they're in the city, they like literally have whole families living in a corner of an apartment. Right? Yeah. But that isn't to say that those people weren't also didn't also have access to these publications that gave them dreams of something different. Right. Um, but the apartment that is depicted in these prescriptive texts, these published texts, you know, they usually had like a a bedroom for a room for children, right? I think I have a picture of this in my book. Like there's a picture of like the child's room, which might have, you know, a couple of beds and like somewhere to put your clothing. It's very modest and small, obviously by our standards. And part of the efficiency, I love this, is that some of the furniture that's advertised and depicted is also very efficient. So you might have like, what are those called? Like the beds that come down from the wall, like a, a Murphy, example, bed, looking, a Murphy yeah. bed. Right. So there's a, a lot of kind of space, a lot of emphasis on being very kind of conservative with space because there was so little space yeah. in the city at this time. Um, and again, like the kitchen would be very small and things would be very close to one another. And, and so the rhetoric was that, that ultimately created efficiencies, right. Cause you could do things quickly. If you have the table, like I said, near the sink or whatever, or the shelf.
2: And in your third chapter, I was really enjoying reading your description about um I was like very fixated fixated on like the jubilee of 1913 for some uh-huh, reason
0: uh-huh, and I
2: just because I just uh-huh. find like you know commemorations and, what, like, what about I'm, it was exciting <laughs> I mean it was just the way that you kind of described it and just like uh-huh. understanding how Russians celebrated the past I find really interesting yeah and so um yeah, you were kind of discussing public nostalgia, and that was kind of like I, I can never pronounce the word correctly. I have it written in my questions: tercentenary of the Romanov, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. like of,
2: like the Romanov dynasty. So it was like, okay, how do you kind of contend with this like long history during this time where like obviously Russians are looking towards the future in many ways, yeah. but also with like a lot of baggage from the past. So, yes, like, that whole chapter was like really fascinating. I kind of fixated on that one moment. But can you talk a little bit about like? Yeah, obviously. Like, what is the Russian fixation with the past, and how did this moment um, really come to pass in your book?
0: Well, one of the one of the arguments I'm trying to make <laughs> is that there is actually not a disjuncture between the impulse to look backwards at the Romanov dynasty in mm-hmm. this moment, you know, to celebrate it publicly in 1913 and so forth, and the fact that there's a huge industrial wave that you know, politics are kind of ramping up all over the place that a lot of people are looking toward the future. The argument that I'm trying to make is that modern time itself is necessarily invested in the layering of all of these at once, right? right? It basically, it is the dynamic of the, of the layering itself that makes it modern is what I'm suggesting because mm-hmm. there's a kind of self-consciousness about the layers. <laughs> right, that, that there is a past, a present, and a future, and that the present, the moment in which we're living, is invested with all of the above. So, therefore, if you think about the obsession with the states or the ter, the whatever it is, <laughs> tercentenary, uh, just tercentenary that happens in 1913, the jubilee, and all of that, or the even the reflections of childhood nostalgia and so forth, that that is necessarily part and parcel of what it means to be modern
2: right and you also you you dedicate some time in this chapter which i think this was one of like your meteor chapter you like the mm-hmm. chapters that had more meat on it so like I, f- mm-hmm. I found a lot of like really interesting dynamics to it um and you mentioned like educated and artistic elites and like this fear of like the fading peasant tradition um as well as like you also discuss like how elite russians use the past to legitimize their peace in the present can you talk a little bit about that And how they kind of hope to integrate these like rural aesthetics into these like new urban ones.
0: Of course. Yeah. I mean, a lot. So a lot of kind of a lot and it's fairly well known, a lot of artists and collectors and so forth at the turn of the century. Uh, were very interested in kind of preserving peasant traditions, right? Mm-hmm. So at the very moment when those, because peasant traditions are imagined to be national traditions, right? right? Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of deliberate attempt to maintain and continue this kind of Russian national consciousness, if you will. Um, and a lot of that is invested in this idea of the peasant being in the past. Right. Right. I mean, never mind that there are peasants here now, but it's almost (laughs) as though like the past peasant is kind of created, right. By the artists or images of the peasant are created by the artists themselves or the craftspeople and so forth to kind of keep that alive as part of the Russian national modern definition of itself. Right. So in some ways that's a maybe more concrete way of understanding the relationship between past and present because if, because Russia isn't Russia without like the peasant, um, right. uh, the peasant, well, without the peasant, but without the crafts that are associated in the designs that are an off some of which are very domestic, the spoons or the, you know, the plates or the things that we very much associate uh, with peasant life and peasant craft um, basically become part of, the modern present and, and artists understanding of themselves. I mean, of course the irony is that the peasants themselves might be like, I don't know why I am making these things that my grandfather might've made in these, in these, you know, workshops that you are, you are creating on your estate, but I'll do it because it certainly gives me more resources than it would not to. Right. right. So it's, it's this kind of funny Uh, modern kind of, or modern-ish kind of system that's asking peasants to almost impersonate a version of themselves from some past that's romanticized.
2: Right, and um, you also discuss, um, you you, you spend significant time discussing like memoirs and nostalgic narratives of um, childhood that I found really interesting. And I think you, you emphasize, I mean, feel free to speak about someone else, but I think you, if I'm not mistaken, you were... Yeah, you highlight a significant portion of it to um, the right. Uh, let me see if I can pronounce it. I think it was yeah, it was a Karuzina. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about how like what those kind of um, narratives really showed you about the the past and
0: and Russia? Sure. So actually, in Barbara Engel's book, I think it's the book that's about divorce and marriage. She focuses a lot on kind of merchants. And a lot of merchants um, actually, the women wrote wrote memoirs. So there are a lot of memoirs that um, that really archive the experiences of I don't know what the class, middle, upper middle, whatever. You know, merchants is a big a big category, but you know, with middle, upper middle class um, values and experiences. And there's in all of these memoirs. There, there's a kind of formula and Tolstoy writes about that formula, right? And how, or uses that formula, I should say, of, you know, you always kind of start with childhood and then you move to youth and so forth and so on. There's a kind of arc of, of the story of one's life. So there's a, a significant portion of these memoirs that are devoted to, to childhood and the childhood that is described is very much described within the context of a kind of nostalgia you know, which is not shocking, Um, and on the estate, right, that the kind of the space of the estate becomes a really important stage for the description, of course, of everyday life, for the description of the past, for the child, you know, for one's childhood and so forth, and the kind of kind relations with one's nanny and one's teachers, and, and all of that. So there were just really rich and kind of beautiful descriptions of that of that experience. So then those are written, you know, some of those are written in like the 19th, you know, certainly mid-century, but they reflect or some um, of them are written earlier, but they reflect yeah, like that the part. earlier
2: period. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so chapter four, Revolutionary
0: Time. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> As you can imagine, this was my favorite chapter. <laughs> I'm
0: shocked, and, Rosemary. Yeah,
2: I know. What a shock. <laughs> I like Soviet stuff. Um, you start us off with that famous line that was written after uh, the death of Lenin, which is right. "Lenin lived, Lenin lives, and Lenin will live." Yeah, I one thousand percent got goosebumps when I read it because it's been <laughs> so long since I would read that line. I think maybe since right. undergrad, uh huh, uh-huh. and it was just like. What a great way to start us off to thinking about revolutionary time. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs)
2: It was wonderful. So can you tell us a little bit about like what revolutionary time looked like? Did the Bolsheviks embrace the past or consider the past as something that should be confronted and swept away? Or was it more layered than that?
0: I mean, the reason I start with the Mayakovsky quote, like you said, is because it it obviously reminds us of the ways in which the Soviet state on some level like intended or felt it could control time, right? Right. Right. And, you know, how everything, when Lenin dies, everything stands still. I think I described yeah, that as Yeah, even preserving well.
2: his body. Yeah.
0: Exactly. So it's a way of kind of defying time, right? Yeah. Um, that's powerful. Uh, the argument that I make about revolutionary time is very, it's kind of similar to the overall argument of the book, which is that revolutionary time really, you um, especially in the context of you know the kind of space of the home, um, really relies on this kind of merging of moments from the past, the present, and reflecting toward the future. Of course, revolutionary time is particularly invested in that utopian future, is the kind of collective utopian future. But that future, in many ways, looked like and resonated with the ideas about modernity and science and Mm -hmm. cleanliness and all of that, that we found in the earlier publication. So the kind of values of science and present and modern that we found earlier were of course there as well in the Soviet context, just really um, in the service of creating uh, a communal home and a notion of kind of collectivity if you will, and mm-hmm. always gazing to the future, of course. I mean, all the rhetoric is about the future in the Soviet context. But we know this. It's not a huge revelation. There's also an embracing of the Russian past, per se, as part of the creating of a kind of Soviet identity and also Soviet time. So that what we find is that it's kind of all necessary to create this idea of, um, of revolutionary time.
2: And do you think temporality um, that was featured in, like, women's magazines and periodicals during this period differed from what you covered in previous chapters? Did, did, like, these aesthetics, especially, like, within the home, look any different?
0: I mean, I think the the answer there is, so, in other words, what's Soviet about Soviet time? And that's also a question that I kind of attempted to tackle in conferences and got good discussions going on. I think I wrote
2: it down as a sub question, like what makes time Soviet or something like that? Yeah,
0: I mean, which is, I think a fascinating question. I I would suggest it has an awful lot to do with, you know, uh, the idea of communal that, I mean, Mm. maybe it's a lame answer, but that's really what I came down to in the end. It's like the emphasis on, the communal apartment, right? As and and the role of the state, of course, in creating the communal apartments and so forth. I mean, beyond that, there you know, you, one could make arguments about continuity. Right. <laughs> Actually, that you might one might be surprised to find. So my my argument is kind of. I wouldn't say it's an argument about continuity because I think the idea of the collective is incredibly important and the very deliberate kind of investment in utopia, if you will. I mean, I know Marx hated utopias, but there there was it's a way. Very utopian, yeah. It's very like, utopian. <laughs> it is in terms of the emphasis on the future, right? That we will live really right. together in harmony and all of that. So I would say that those are the things that really define it as Soviet per se. Although some of the magazines, like I said, had runs that started in 1910 and went into 1930s you know the aesthetic might have changed but a lot of the messaging didn't right
2: and in your concluding chapter um (laughs) you make a number of observations obviously about like the post-soviet experience and like nostalgic ideas about the past particularly especially like the soviet past because obviously it's the post-soviet experience right you think time and home really continue to sit at the center of how russians self-identify
0: oh that's a great question well, I'm going to back off a of bit for a second, but I'll come back around and you'll push me if I forget. But I have to say that that last chapter was my very favorite chapter to write. And I wrote it like in a weekend. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and because it really was <clears throat> based on a trip that I took to Moscow with a friend of mine that I referenced in the book, um, And it was really like us, you know, obviously I read a lot and all of this, I spent time in the library, but beyond that, we just walked around the city right? and we kept being really struck by, and this, you know, I say this now and it seems banal, but we were struck at the time by the ways in which like there are these kind of layerings everywhere of past and present like where right. you would walk down the main boulevards and you you walk into a restaurant that like looks like a peasant hut for example and that's like it's totally commercialized and that's what you're buying but you're buying nostalgia right for the russian past and then you walk up the street and there's a soviet flag and it was uh there was also a display in like the Dom Knigi of all these biographies of Stalin, because it was the, the anniversary of the war, May Day, when we were there, I think it was May, and so yeah. it was like this kind of like celebration of not just Soviet, but <laughs> not Stalin, but <clears throat> of of you know the Soviet past and the Russian past, and you know the kind of obviously almighty technological future of Russia today, of the post Soviet moment, right? <laughs> So it's like all there, all at once, right before you. <laughs> right. And <clears throat> so I would say that these ideas about time are, in fact, central to post-Soviet understanding. And I would also say, in the Russian context, the home, you know, has a particular yeah, I was role. Ask you. Yeah. Yeah. That the home has a particular role because of the nature. Of private life, because of the nature of public life, I could say that because of the nature, the heaviness of the state, whether we're talking about the 19th century or the 20th, it gives particular meaning to the kind of domestic spaces, right? And so I would say the answer to your question is simply yes, that there is something particular, I would argue, about how important time and temporality, and especially, I mean, I, I, I kind of wince to say private, but I think I mean private time um, <clears throat> has in the, in the post-Soviet context, as well as in, in the modern Russian context in general.
2: And I just, I found that so interesting, and especially with that last chapter, because obviously when I think about the post-Soviet experience, like I go back to thinking about like Svetlana Boim, like Future of Nostalgia, mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that this book was really useful for is kind of just breaking me out of the kind of binary that I understand time as something as like fixed, right? and thinking about time as something that's like, a, like almost as a verb, something that's continuously kind of created and recreated and right. renegotiated in the present, yeah. and thinking about the future.
0: Mm -hmm. And so, like,
2: that's something that I think this book really did kind of, like, help me sort of, like, break out of. Because, of course, I was going into it thinking, okay, is this going to be a book about, like, restorative nostalgia or, reflexive nostalgia? Like, what type of nostalgia? I'm like, wait, no, this is, like, a totally different framework. Right. And between, like, your book and, like, I just Mm -hmm. uh, interviewed Dr. Bustamante a couple days ago and on his book. And obviously it's about time and memory in many ways. And I'm thinking, like, okay, so now I'm seeing that there's, like, you know, like, we're kind of just pushing past this. Like, in the field in general, just thinking about it in that way and I found it super interesting and another one of the takeaways that I really enjoyed was kind of um uh challenging my own assumptions about like the distinctions between the late imperial Mm -hmm. state and the early Soviet era and realizing that they're really not that different Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then the way that you're talking about and like how these physical spaces emerged obviously there was like you know looking to the future in many ways and like changes but like it really a lot of their um like, there's a lot more continuity than I expected to see. Like, we tend to look at the revolutionary era as this kind of, like, break from what was right. past and just moving present. And that's a lot muddier than we than we actually think about.
0: I mean, you've just made me very happy for many reasons. Because, <laughs> yeah. because two of the things I would hope or ideas I would hope that would uh, people who do read this book would take away are precisely those—the kind of like you can't see me, but I'm going like my <laughs> 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 like moment when you realize, oh my gosh, like time is a category. Time yeah. is a category, right? Super exciting, and it really opens up so many possibilities, you know. And of course, Bustamante's work, same, right? That same kind of set of ideas, and I think it's just a very productive. Idea for understanding well historical problems, but also contemporary sure. ones. I would argue, and also secondly, the choice to go across that you know that that sacred revolutionary divide was very much by design, and I'm glad that that worked for you as a reader and seemed somewhat convincing. Um, yeah,
2: absolutely. So I and it's that. so, and it's just so. Uh, the other thing I wanted to really commend you by, and I'm, I'm not like, you know, I'm not kissing ass because obviously you're my, <laughs> you're my advisor, but because I literally, like, as I was reading, I'm like, this is a really beautifully written book. Like oh it was gosh. beautifully written. Like the prose was unbelievably well Thank done. Like you. I think, especially in like your first and last chapter, where you kind of like introduced it and bookended, it, like it was really, really like compelling to read oh and my to gosh. follow through. And because, like, I think that was necessary. Almost, I mean, it's obviously like it, it shows like your 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 writing abilities, but it, I think it was necessary to do that because this book could have easily been so heavily like, like philosophical and theoretical that the reader mm-hmm. could just get lost in it. Mm -hmm. that like Mm -hmm. the fact that you were able to write so kind of like elegantly but also very simply shows that Mm -hmm. like the complexity and like the time that you dedicated to this book so all of that really comes out really clearly in the book
0: well you're making me so happy (laughs) thank you I really really appreciate that I do care about writing and I I yeah anyway thank you
2: and it's and it's honestly it's very refreshing obviously you got a lot of very traditional monographs in the field and sometimes that's necessary especially like your first or second book or whatever but yeah um writing in a way that's very engaging especially when you can tell that like the topic needs it is it's a very different kind of skill set in, in general so yeah. I think that like came out really beautifully
0: I appreciate
2: that. Thank of you. Of course. Well, Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for chatting with me today about your book and your experiences as a researcher and of course for the important work that you do.
0: Oh my gosh, thank you. I really enjoyed this, Rosemary. Thank you. <laughs> Dr.
2: Friedman's book, Modernity, Domesticity and Temporality, is available for purchase via Bloomsbury Publishing. Thank you, all the listeners, for joining in.
0: Bye-bye, thanks.